Intuition is nothing more and nothing less than recognition. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum. On this episode of the podcast, we have Mason Hayes. Mason is the co-director of performance at APAC, where he's working with multiple pro, college, and high school athletes of all sports. Today, Mason takes us down the rabbit holes of systemizing the chaos. How we can take all the out there things that we talk about and apply it to a business model system that allows athletes of all ages to rotate in and out of the door in an actual business in an actual gym. Mason talks a lot about how he has to work with agents, how he has to work with parents, how he has to work with team coaches when you have 50 to 60 athletes. And that's one of the cool things I think about this podcast is how we can take the woo-woo-wee stuff that we talk about and really apply it to all situations. If we're in a situation that can be as woo-woo-wee as possible, we just go all in and do that. But if we're not in a situation like that and we're in a business setting and we have people to answer to, how can we still take the best of both worlds and really apply it? And Mason does a really nice job of laying out how they do that there at APEC. He also talks about how they implement gymnastics and the eight-vector system and a lot of spinal engine-type movements into their training of their athletes. APEC is known for training athletes like Patrick Mahomes and other rotational monsters. And it's really cool to see how this isn't just random and how they really actually emphasize the aspects of rotation and 3D movement and eight vector movement systems. And I love how Mason kind of applies all of this and really implements it into his training and how it shows up with his athletes. We talk a lot at Yoakum Strength about how the spinal engine is an absolute must to train if you really want a rotational athlete and you want all of your athletes to be rotational, whether you're moving a human or hitting a ball or throwing a football. It's a massive component to a lot of what we do and how it really is trainable and how we're missing a big piece of the puzzle when we don't train it. So I really got a lot out of this podcast and I geeked out about a lot of stuff when I was talking with Mason about this and a lot of different training aspects that we can really implement into our current system and just eye openers of how they're doing it at the highest level at APAC. So I hope you guys get as much out of this podcast as I did. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for the continued support. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite-level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Man, I'm excited to be on, man. Um, been a follower of your content for a long time. Um, came across you on social and just have loved everything that you've done for a while. I've been able to kind of pick and pull. I've even been able to follow some of your programs for a little bit um, and just been a long time to enjoy what you're doing. So I'm excited to be here and chop it up with you. 
Yeah, I was going to say, it's been fun to bump back ideas on Instagram. That's where we originally got connected, been bouncing back ideas and just talking and just spitballing. I've just been seeing some of your stuff and a lot of Apex stuff too and just diving into that. But I think you might be the first coach and insider, like previous insider on this podcast. So I think that I think you got a first there. Yeah, I've been able to see kind of both parts of all this and uh, what kind of what we were talking about before we hit record. I can kind of take some of the freedom that you have with what you do in your stuff and then almost look at some different ways to kind of put it in a system and kind of take it into a more structured environment um, kind of with what we're doing in the private sector. Um, and dude, it's just been fun, man. It's been fun to kind of look at both sides and see where we can go with stuff. Yeah. And before we hit record, we, you, you started talking about how you and I probably had very similar backgrounds um, with that Jody approach and going in that conjugate approach and going into that very linear based approach, that very systemized based approach. Not that systems are bad, but the, the very structured system approach into things. Um, and that's something that I want to dive into, how you got into that that apex role where it is that systemized chaos. And it is kind of, you, you talked about pain outside the lines just a little bit. And there's where it's not totally like JST chaos, like apes, but it's like, it's not, we're not just strictly doing a steps, a skips, three sets of 10 barbell back squat program. Um, Not that there's not merit to some of those things, but we're painting outside the lines. That's something that you said at the start. How did we get to this point in our journey to be all right with some of these things? And kind of where did we start from? Because this is a, a lot of coaches struggle with. Um, They just think like, coaches that are at these points like i just always started crazy like they always started crazy i'm like that's usually not it every coach that i talk to that is painting outside the lines started pretty structured and at some point they realized what they were doing wasn't working or just that there was a better way and they were just exposed to a better way so what was that kind of that journey like for you yeah i mean what i was saying before we hit record you and i kind of grew up in a similar era and i think we went some of this down some of the same rabbit holes that kind of led us to where we are um when I started to come across your stuff, you see some of the more unstructured freeform play. You start to see some of the things that we're trying to get from a training adaptation standpoint, but you go about getting it a little bit more in an indirect way. Um, and I think what a lot of coaches early on maybe start to separate is kind of like what the brain's role is versus looking at athletes from just this like soft tissue body preparation standpoint um what we were kind of saying earlier is that you can write the world's best most perfect program on paper and then when you go into execute that program if every athlete moves with absolutely zero intent there's nothing that feels super inviting about that training session nothing that you know you use the term eight brain a lot and i think that's like the perfect line and i can't put perfect words into exactly what that means, but I think people can kind of feel the intent by what you're going at whenever you say that. It's getting them very, very much so involved and in kind of getting into a higher level of, you know, thinking and intent that they're bringing into what they're doing that I think is going to elicit a way better adaptation than them just being kind of mindless zombies going through a very traditional training session. And you talked about the soft tissue part, and this is one of the things that I think is really important too, because obviously, obviously I value the intent. Obviously I value the play aspect. And just one of the things you say um, in one of your posts was like, we laughed, we smiled, you know, like those are so important and getting that intense and creating an environment in which an athlete wants to show up, uh, especially like professional athletes you work with or college athletes you work with. It's like, they're, they're man, some of their schedules is like, man, of course they don't like training like this. A lot of it, it's just so monotonous. Like, so I, I definitely value it, but you also touched on the soft tissue aspect 
And obviously part of our job is keeping our athletes healthy, um, allowing them to stay on the field, allowing them to perform, working on these soft tissue aspects. Um, but this is where like the brain comes into that aspect too. Um, and being prepared for some of these chaotic environments comes into that aspect too. So it's not just, we're here for just laughs and we're here for just smiles, but working this brain aspect side of it and working this chaos side of it, um, is going to help with these injury preventions. Uh, however you want to phrase it. I'm not a huge, huge into injury prevention because then people start to get in their head, like bands around the knees and some of these, like just straight up, like it's something that has nothing to do with the sport, but you, you got to expose one, the body to a lot of these different positions that this play-based approach is going to allow you to do, or this constraint ledge approach is going to allow you to do, but also the brain perceiving that information and putting our bodies in better positions, or at least, allowing our body even if we're going to get beat on a play we're not going to tear our acl on a play hopefully just because okay we get beat but we've been beat before and we're going to fall this way we're going to roll this way we're going to put our body in this position rather than the first time that's happening is at 20 miles an hour on the field yeah um i think when you know listen to kind of what you're saying what's kind of going on in my brain is like certain environments that i'm trying to get different people prepared for like cameron jossie has done a really good job of talking about some of this and making it a very digestible i think you know it's very digestible for coaches to kind of consume what he gets at and makes this very complex picture a little bit more simplified. Um, if I'm trying to get, let's just, you know, use football for an example, because I think we both have a familiar background with that. If I'm trying to get a running back ready for what he's going to encounter in season, I could do a ton of premeditated change of direction work. We could work crossover steps, lateral pushes, um, everything that you kind of traditionally see people do to prepare for what would be like a change of direction drill. Now, if I do that all off season, he doesn't have any type of exposure to perceiving another person, making decisions based off of what that other person is doing, watching his action change what the other person is doing, and then making another decision based off of that. And that pattern just kind of rolling over and over and over again then when they go back to whatever their OTAs is, their camp, the first time they start to get in those environments, there's so many cognitive things that are going on that the brain is having to perceive that I think creates a very different complex picture than what I've prepared them for prior to leading up to that. Maybe I have prepared the adductors and hamstrings and all these different tissues to be able to take on certain demands, but those demands are very different in these more complex dynamic environments. And it's really as simple as getting them into some of these more small sided games, these more free form play type environments that are very much what sport, you know, is like, if I'm trying to get people ready to play a game, then I want to put them in situations that are very similar to that of a game. Now, I think in my setting in particular, I have to kind of balance some of that. And I think early on, it probably looks a little bit more premeditated, a little bit more kind of traditional drill form. But as we progress throughout an off season, I think, you know, I know I have to get them some exposure to what sport looks like. And that's when you'll start to see some of those 1v1 score variations, 2v1. Now we add some type of constraint with a ball. Um, there's some obstacle. I can change the spacing on stuff. And I kind of start to manipulate what sport looks like for them and get them exposure to being able to take some of the things we built on over the course of an offseason and make it a little bit more transferable, transferable to what it's going to look like in season for them.
Mm-hmm. And and in just in the simple meathead way, it's like if you don't work the hamstrings at all in your offseason, like your hamstrings are not going to be prepared. And if you don't work the muscle that is the brain in the offseason, like it, the brain's not going to be prepared. And the brain's what runs everything in the hamstrings, the adductors, everything that you want to keep healthy. So I think that's important just in the meathead way. Like you got to work all the muscles and the brain is a muscle that you want to work. Like you want to actively work that and challenge it. Now, we we, we keep touching on this Um how in our approach, how, how you have to build it up, especially you talked about before. It's like, okay, like I can't, I have 40 combine athletes and I got to answer to all their agents and there, there's millions of dollars on the table and I got to prepare them for these five tests that um, is going to make them a lot of money. Like it, it it's in, probably not as important in the sense of the playing the sport itself, but you're going to tell a kid that, uh, that you can take from a third round to a first round based off their 40 and make millions of dollars and, uh, enhance their NFL career. Um, that that's not important like that that's when one of the arguments i see on the on the the coaching side is like don't train them at all for the combine because it doesn't matter it's like okay you're making that person millions of dollars life-changing money like it it does matter in that aspect i'm if we want to change it we're going to change it on the combine and the nfl and you're not going to change it on that athletes and athletes end. but anyways how do you how do you balance these things how do you add in what you think is important for the field what you think is important for their sport and what matters and what you think is important for these tests that you know they're going to get tested on for. And maybe it's just even also just some of the more systemized approach of like you have a business, you have you you have APEC that you have to answer to. You have these agents that you have to answer to. And like you said, you can't just have them play uh, APEC ball all day. Like you, you actually have to have you have to have some structure and show them what we're doing. And even some buy in with some of these professional athletes, whereas if they're not totally they're not your Patty Mahomes or just that one on one like you've worked with them since you've been 14. You have a professional athlete like having them do that right away is probably not going to get them to buy in they're probably going to want to see something so how are you working all these aspects to systemize that chaos that we're talking about yeah i mean i think with combine in particular it's honestly it's a very linear approach like we're essentially not getting them prepared to play a sport we're getting them better to do things that we do in training like we're trying to get them good at a time sprint we're trying to get them good at jumping high at jumping far at lifting more weight more times like it's a very simple linear training approach. And so I think with that becomes a very, you know, monotonous training plan that gets laid out over the course of like eight to 12 weeks for some of those guys. Um, And so you'll kind of see when guys come in, there's that initial buzz of getting ready for all this. And it's super exciting, super inviting. Um, You know, a lot of the training is still different from what they're used to maybe doing at school. Um, It's not exactly identical to maybe what they've done over the course of the last four to five years. But after kind of weeks two, three, especially when you get around week four, you kind of start to see the dip in the valley of things getting a little bit monotonous for what a lot of those guys do. And so this is where I think you have to kind of play into some of that little bit of structured chaos like we're talking about. You know, we have to be creative enough as coaches to create an environment that's a little bit more inviting to their brain because I think you and I both know and people can intuitively sense this that if I have athletes that are approaching training sessions with very high intent, everything seems very inviting to what they do. I'm going to take an athlete going through that training session, regardless of what sets and reps are or exercise selection is. If I can accumulate some volume over time with athletes moving with like their life depends on it, I will take that over the athlete that is doing the perfect training program with the perfect volume, the perfect intensity laid out, the dosage is just right. 
but they hate everything that they're doing or they just aren't in a good headspace throughout the entire training session as they go through stuff. I think we both know which one's probably going to yield better results. And the brain obviously is going to override everything. I mean, I see it all the time. Um, I have athletes that come in no matter what the age is that all the cards leading up to this training session shouldn't be right. Maybe their girlfriend broke up with them. Maybe they didn't sleep the night before. Maybe they had a bad day at school and they walk in and there could be 16 individuals around them. There could be half of them being very encouraging. They could have a couple friends in the group. They're talking a little bit of crap to them. And we're doing just some very numerically based stuff where they can see their output, just instant feedback. And you'll see people go pop PRs all the time. And that has like all the cards on the table. Shouldn't let that happen. Everything we know from a training you know, standpoint should say like they should not PR at this moment. And guess what? Like people find a way to make things happen. If I want to get very dramatic with it, I could put a gun to your head right now and tell you, Hey, like PR trigger gets pulled and you're going to find a way to go PR, you know? And so I think as coaches, we have to find this dynamic interplay where we can play into that a little bit and find some of that at the right time and be able to cultivate that environment, but you got to almost do it organically and then know when we need to pull back and let people just find a way to go work and go about their business. Maybe not always having that as well. Yeah. And find a way for them to tap into that eight brain. Like we talked about, like the putting the gun to their head or just giving them that play environment or giving the talking shit, you know, like uh, this morning we had a really great example. We have this guy that's been running a, uh, one zero four on this flying 10. Um, and he, he's been running it pretty consistently. He's been a one zero four, like one zero five, one zero four, like back and forth for the past three or four weeks. Uh, today we did this little tic-tac-toe sprints um, XL. And this is typically how we do our sprints. We'll do some sort of chaos based or just more um, variation based sprint before just to try and tap into that eight brain. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it really clicks with the athlete and sometimes it doesn't. And you really just have to play around with a lot of these things. But we did these tic-tac-toe sprints. Um, and this is one where everybody was pretty fired up today. Like everybody was like yelling at each other, talking shit. It's like, it's like 10 yard sprints. You just try and get the first team to tic-tac-toe but everybody's talking shit before it then we go run flying tens and the dude uh broke a second you know so like just uh not even a little pr like a massive pr in a flying 10 that he's been stuck at like consistently um and we we start to get into that apron a little bit and they, they, they something triggered for them uh and he's just hitting massive prs and he ran under a second twice and his first one uh, his first one was a PR and then he ran under a second twice on them back to back to back. And it's like, okay, everything's hitting. And it's just trying to access that ape brain without like, without putting a gun to their head, you know, like you can, you can do it in different aspects too. But I, I think that's uh, talking about systemizing the chaos. That's kind of how we do it too. Is like try to, the systemized part is that is that flying 10 is that traditional linear sprint, which we're trying to push those outputs. Um, because in, in these game-based models, we're probably not going to touch that max velocity in these in, in these tic-tac-toe sprints. Maybe in some of your races, but even then, you're, you're perceiving so much that it's probably going to slow you down just a little bit. But so you have that that systemized approach of that linear approach that we're doing. But you have that chaos that kind of allows you to balance back and forth between the two rather than I, – I, I just know for a fact if we're just running straight flying tens, we're not even touching PRs. Like they're just going to get – unless you have maybe a track athlete that for some reason is super engaged – in that, like, okay, this is actually my sport and I got another person to race and we're going through, maybe then you're touching PRs. But, man, if th these team sport athletes that we're working with, like, for sometimes it, it, it's engaging for them to see their numbers and, and, like, race and do that. But a lot of times, like, they need just a little bit more. Otherwise, the sprints kind of lose their lose their flair for them and, and giving them just that little bit. And it takes five to ten minutes, and now we're hitting massive PRs in our output base. Yeah, man. I mean, I have 
a million examples over the course of the last couple of years that I can think of that are very similar to what you just kind of said with your particular athlete. I think the days that I'll come into traditional training sessions with like some of my high school groups, the days that I walk in and things are a little bit more slow, there's a little bit more yawns. There's not as much chitter chatter kind of going on amongst them before class starts. Those are kind of the days that I'm like, all right, guys, like go head outside. I'll grab a soccer ball, a couple trash cans, and we're going to make up some type of game to play. And that's going to be our warm up. And you'll see that after 10, 12, 15 minutes of doing that and kids kind of start talking crap back to one another, the environment kind of elevates, things get a little bit more inviting. That's when we'll cut it off, head back in, throw the lasers up. And it's like, let's run. And what went from this very slow kind of non-inviting environment just went to, you know, dopamine's through the roof, their brains just like on go. And now kids are running fast. They're jumping well. And we've kind of elevated what that all is. And we got so much accomplished in such a simple, such a simple layout of what it is like, go play a game. And then let's go sprint on some lasers. Like that checks a lot of boxes, man. Like I got them out there. They got their foot contacts in core temperature got elevated. Their brain got involved with things. And again, kind of back to what you're talking about earlier, like we smiled, we laughed, we played, we learned how to move within a team environment. We learned how to verbally communicate within that non-verbally communicate within that. Like some of those small intangible type things that most people don't think about that make athletes really good at sports. They got exposure to all of that. And then we went and just took away all of those things and just said, let's go move fast. You know, let's speed this nervous system up. And, you know, I think there's so much that gets accomplished within that. And I think being able to balance, you know, how much you dose that in, because, you know, I do think that's important, especially in my setting too. like explaining to a parent that like, all we do is play games all day is a tough sell. Sometimes like they pay a high premium to bring their kid in here. They think they're going to get, you know, elite speed training, elite speed coaching, and they will get that a thousand percent. Um, but at the same time, you know, with what I know, I'm not going to beat a kid dead into the ground, getting him the perfect a skip, you know, you know, and I know that that's not going to have all the carryover in the world to what they need. So I have to find a way to be able to balance some of that and dose it in at the right time and also be able to tailor into the things that they also think they need, which definitely has its place and role. Um, and I can't just go too far down one side of things. Um, and so it's always kind of this dynamic interplay of me going back and forth between giving both sides of those things. Yeah. And so with that, so let's get out of the combine world because that is pretty structured. I, and it's like you really don't have a ton of free play, but maybe it is a high school kid or maybe it's a professional athlete outside of outside of the combine world. What does that balance look like for you? How How is that set up? Is it just is it just some days you see the metal down and we're just adding in some chaos those days or is every day we have a touch of chaos and a touch of the the, the balance like what does that look like with you when it is not a combine setting but it is a high school athlete setting where we're actually we're now we actually are working to improve at our sport rather than working to improve at those combine tests because you have millions of dollars on the line what how does that change for you and how do you balance like what aspect of your training is that chaos base what aspect of the training is the structure base um and how are we mending those two yeah, I think with some of those lower level groups, whenever training is mapped out and planned out in advance, that's something that over the course of the last year that I have tried to be a lot more cognizant of and be way more mindful of going into it. So as I'm planning out programming, I still have I still have this picture of what I want a session of flow and look like and certain things that I want to tap into. 
I don't want to go through an entire training session and just check my boxes of, you know, we're going to sprint, jump, rotate, do a lower body movement, push, pull, like trunk piece, you know, and say, okay, like solid training session. Like in my mind, when I'm mapping certain things out, I do try to stay mindful of, okay, like how are they going to feel? What type of environment is this going to create within the group? And, you know, I think to some extent you can control some of those whenever you're mapping out programming. And then I think on the other end of that, that's where you have to be an elite coach and know what audibles you have to call the day of the moment of based off of what's happening. Um, You could plan certain things out and you could walk in and you could have 16 kids. And on those days, it's pretty easy for that environment to be kind of popping. Everything's feeling good. Kids are interacting with one another. They're all getting involved. They're all competing in the intense really high. And then you could walk in and there could be a group of four and none of them know each other yet, never talked to each other before. And your session's very dull and quiet. And that's where you have to be able to maybe pick and pull and call some audibles and implement certain things at the right time to kind of create what you're actually after. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. And now, taking a step out of that out of the, the the brain setting and back into maybe some of the tissue prep stuff we we teased on a little bit of now okay we do have to pre- prepare the tissues and one of the ways that i love how you guys do this and just prepare the body too is you kind of prepare the body in this in this uh, bad as this like the holistic fashion that full body fashion everything connected fashion and we're implementing things like the eight vector system we're implementing things like um uh gymnastics and uh, gymnastics in quotation like sport gymnastics um a ton of focus that I see on the spine and movements and bending and just doing movements that seem like kind of should be common sense in athletic development, just creating a fluid, beautiful athlete that you really don't see in a lot of. And, and this is where I, I see it. Cause you and I probably, we, we have a circle of coaches that like, we're always seeing it because we have coaches that surround ourselves with people that are like always adding in crawls, gymnastics, always adding in bends and and spinal movements but if you really go to a high school like a traditional high school you go to a traditional training facility you're not going to see any of it so how do you guys imp- why uh, first off why do you guys find value in a lot of these systems why do you guys find value in it and then how do you go about implementing some of these things as well as keeping some of the traditional barbell type lifts yeah um so i think with some of the more triplanar stuff we do the eight vector stuff we do kind of some of the spinal engine type stuff that you see i think when that light bulb moment clicks, clicks and you see, you know, kind of the spine's role and you start to unlock kind of what's happening within the body with all movement and the rotation, the elongation of tissue, some of these fascial line stuff. Um, and you start to make sense out of why certain athletes can be very successful at solving movement problems whenever they may suck at what would be considered some of the more traditional weight room stuff it's hard to ignore. And I think once you start to unpack some of that and go down those rabbit holes, you can start kind of start to help athletes make more sense of, you know, this with what you have at your disposal, you're given, you know, just God gifts. This is how we can help you start to solve some problems. And even that athlete that's maybe, you know, like you or I have been down more of the meathead rabbit hole. Maybe they'd have been doing conjugate and Jody stuff for 10 years we can kind of start to feed back in some stuff that's going to unlock the body a little bit and they can kind of take what they've been able to build from like a force production standpoint and let it make more sense to complete a little bit more athletic fluid movement task. Even something like a linear act of sprinting or walking or any type of regular gait, I'm going to see 
bones that rotate in the transverse plane. I'm going to see the spine oscillate. So I know people can't see me on camera, but my shoulders are rotating in the sagittal plane forward and back. I'm going to see undulation. So almost this seesaw action in the frontal plane of the hip and shoulder girdles. Um, you know, I'm going to see as those bones start to rotate, the tissue that's connected throughout the entire chain of the body, it's going to twist and wind and unwind in these fascial slings. And this is going to create almost this very powerful elastic action all to just simply move me forward, you know? And I think you can kind of see the difference between some of those more robotic movers who have maybe been coached to live in these 90 degree angles and everything's like this 90, 90 cheek to cheek. Yet I go watch Usain Bolt sprint on video and he's very short in the front side with his arm action, palms probably facing towards his face. And then as he sweeps down, his arms almost completely locked out straight as he gets by his hip. And then his thumb is going to literally, he's going to pronate through his arm. Everything's rotating, twisting and winding. Shoulders are bouncing back and forth. There's a little bit of that head over foot action. You know, we, all of that right there, just to move linear just shows me that's like, dude, rotation's important. And I don't need you to be a baseball player for me to make sure that you're rotating, throwing med balls around that we're, you know, we're lucky enough to have Kaiser units and functional trainers. We're over there doing rotational output based stuff, swinging PVC pipes, different weighted bat implements. And that's with every athlete. Cause if I can improve the ability for the spine to powerfully rotate, I'm going to improve your ability to do a linear sprint. I'm going to make you a more fluid mover. Um, I'm in the weight room. This is where almost like PRI has kind of opened me up to this rabbit hole as well, but being able to do some of these alternating type movements as I do a row, I reach with my opposite arm and kind of some of that yin yang, that cross crawl pattern that we do um, that I love, you know, bear crawls are great for some of that. And how do you practically, so I, I, I'm, I'm loving everything that you're saying and diving into these obstacles. How do you practically implement some of these things? So for like example, one of the big things that I found effective is we'll do a, uh, let's say if we're going to, whatever our output is for the day, if it's highly compressive, we're going to do something elastic based. We're going to do, let's say um, if it is a hex bar deadlift for a main lift, something we're going to pair that with a, a cross crawl pattern, a, a crawling implement or some sort of spinal um, bends, just something a little bit more uh, expansive base, open up the spine, feel a little better. And we'll kind of pair those two back and back, back, back and forth. Um, and then a lot of our accessories will do maybe more traditional, one more traditional and one more, just a little bit more expansive base, one more of that PRI, like cross crawl push pattern um, that you're talking about. How are you practically implementing these um, into your program? Um, and I know you do a lot of stuff with the eight vector system in your warm up too, but how are you, how are you practically making sure that we are, implementing some of these things in our, into our program. Yeah. Similar to what you're saying, there's that yin yang approach. And I think what's unique about APEC and what's made us really good in the private sector is our facility was designed to move in this layout of just speed, power, strength. And the majority of people that come to a private sector facility that's similar to us are not coming five days a week. Um, the majority of our athletes like high school and below are two day a week athletes. And they typically probably have some type of lift that they traditionally do at school. So that kind of allows us to fill in a lot of gaps and kind of do a little bit more of what would be considered the tip of the spear stuff. And they're kind of getting the bulk of the more traditional means at what they do maybe at their school and things like that. Now, if you are an athlete that comes in five days a week, you're going to get exposure to some of those very traditional, just 
force producing capability stuff. They're going to front squat. They're going to do trap bar deadlift, but within that model of that speed power strength, um, we're going to do exposure to time sprints. We're going to get some exposure to making that a little bit more of like a constraint based approach where we'll have a little bit more variability within that. Um, in our power areas, we will kind of do a model of where we're doing like some type of lower moving on a Kaiser unit. So we have power squats and power runners. And after that, it'll be followed by usually some type of jump variation. We'll have them rotate every day. So that could be a med ball throw that could be rot rotating on the Kaiser that could be swinging something, whatever it might be. Is that with um, the two day, two day a week people, or is that the five day a week people as well? So this model will work across all five of those days. And if you come two days a week, you'll still get the same exposure. If it's, if it's out, if it's going out across five days a week, they're basically the only thing that's going to change is they're going to get a little bit more exposure to some of the traditional meats. Yep. And so after they've spent, you know, 30 minutes to an hour in both of those sections, as they come kind of come down to our strength piece, that's where you'll see on some days we'll still take that triplanar approach. So maybe I'm doing something like, we'll call it just a three-way lunge. So I'm incorporating the sagittal plane when I lunge forward or backwards. I'm incorporating the frontal plane when I move side to side with that lunge. And then I'm also rotating as I lunge back at an angle and work in and out of some of these different positions. And now I'm kind of prepping these tissues a little bit more globally. Um, but also for some of those athletes that are there every day of the week, they're going to get exposure to, like I said, what I said earlier, they'll do trap bar deadlift. They'll, they'll still front squat. They'll still do barbell reverse lunges. Um, and for, I think those high school athletes, it's like sometimes force will just build up everything. It's like they are just limited by the fact that they can't produce any type of force. And even the athletes that maybe are only coming twice a week, I know that they're getting a lot of that outside of those doors. And then we're kind of feeding back in some of the tip of the spear stuff. And so honestly, when I look back, you know, to myself in high school, I was really, really fortunate to where some of those rabbit holes progressed into. And when I did start to get into some of the more traditional, like conjugate and Joe D stuff, I was spending, you know, four days a week or so doing some of that. And around that same time, that's where APEC started to kind of get a little bit of hype around where I'm from in East Texas. And the moment that I could drive APEC was an hour away door to door. And I started going out there as an athlete twice a week. So, I mean, I was getting, you know, I was very limited by, by my ability to produce force. My success in sports kind of came from me being able to move just a little bit faster than most people. And I had a lot of good, like kinesthetic awareness. I could pick up on movement well, solve problems well, um, but was not just this in the weight room, overwhelming athlete. Um, I didn't, I couldn't jump out the gym. I was really weak. And so kind of having some of those more traditional means that kind of just built up my base and basically just my GPP and then being able to go to APEC twice a week and get this very global exposure to all the other stuff kind of filled in all those other box um, boxes. That's kind of what we've been for a long time as far as like youth development goes. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty sweet. We do that with a lot of our um, with a lot of our uh, in-season athletes, too, especially at the college level where they're coming in. And we're, we're just kind of implementing some of those things. So that's really cool to hear that you guys do that, too. That, that, that's uh, uh, rewarding to hear that we're kind of hopefully on the right path there with, with that type of system, just because otherwise it's just by the end of the season, man, I see so many athletes just so destroyed just because you took away so many other movement options throughout the, the season and just just getting them a lot of feel like feel better like that. that That's a lot of our goals. I know that you guys had the um the the wednesday workouts that you posted too what what was it wicked wednesday or what was the wednesday workout yeah it's our wicked region stuff um, yeah 
And so it's kind of that middle of the week reset where we basically, you kind of talked earlier about some gymnastic type work. That's kind of that day that we can get a lot of that in. And it's basically a day that's like you walk in and you maybe feel a little beat up from whatever we did and really got after it on Monday, Tuesday. And Wednesday is going to walk out and you're going to feel a lot better than when you came in. Yet you don't realize going into it that it's a lot of work. Um, I think most people come in, it's like, oh, it's like Wednesday recovery day, the first time they hear it. And then we get into it. And now they've spent, you know, 30 yards bear crawling across the ground, doing all of our gymnastica roll series. Um, and just the time under tension that I think you accumulate in some of these weird in range positions. Um, the way we go about kind of implementing some of this is where you realize like, dude, this is work and this is a big enough stimulus to cause some actual change in mobility. You know, like I went down some very deep, like Kelly Starrett rabbit holes early on and everything that he does is absolutely great. But it took me a long time to realize that, you know, smashing soft tissue till I bleed on my bedroom floor and, you know, grabbing a band and just rolling it around, like just, you know, mindlessly just kind of just trying to accumulate all this volume, you know, doing these certain specific mobility drills, you know, nothing, nothing was a great enough stressor to overcome the stress that put me into the positions that I was in at that moment. And with what we kind of do on some of that, those Wednesday series, I mean, it's, it's absolute work. And I think, you know, it is a training day. It is a complete workout and guys start to realize that when you come in, like, it's probably one of the most important days of the week, if not the most important days of the week, if we're going to correct some of these things that push you into where you're at, you know, some of the trauma that you've had to take on from your sport and other things in your life, like it's going to take a stressor that's equal or greater to that to kind of override and put you back to where you were before and to kind of continually build and improve upon some of those things. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty sweet. And like you said, like when, when you were looking at a lot of the crawling or something that I've been getting into recently is a lot of climbing too, man. Like you you look at the volume, the time and attention, like the intensity that you have in a lot of these massively awkward positions. There's been nothing that's improved. Like I was the same, I like you talking about you and I going down deeper rabbit holes. Like I was Kelly Surratt to the max, man. And again, like there's a lot of ton stuff and I just still think he's a mad genius. Like there's still so many good things there. I'm not, I don't want to shit on anybody there. That's helped a ton of people, but my mobility, like I did that for three to four years. My mobility never improved like it did in six months of climbing, you know, like six months of climbing where you're putting your position, like stretching up. Like, it's crazy. I'm like, holy, like I look at some of the videos. I'm like, doing the splits. I'm like hanging like this. I'm like, some of that stuff is, is pretty wild to me. And like, it, it's it's what you're saying. It's just like, it's it's the ability to put that time and attention, that stress into the body of mobility without actually like thinking about it. And obviously you can be a little bit more, um, you can direct it a little bit more when you're going for active mobility. Maybe you're trying to re it's a pitcher that's trying to uh, improve some of the, the elbow and shoulder, and you can be a little bit more direct with some of it and um, progress it in a little bit more linear fashion than just climbing, where it's just going to be global aspects that you're challenging. But it, it's been pretty wild to me of how some of these natural movements just naturally do what you want, you know, rather than like you said, just putting a band in so specific in one area um, rather than kind of connecting the body globally. And like you said, it's like the stress that's required that the stress that puts you in that situation, like that 500 pound squat that, that made maybe those hip flexors tight, you know, like um, <laughs> the band, you're going to maybe have to sit on the band for 40 minutes to get out of that, you know, where you could climb for 40 minutes without, without blinking an eye, but man, sitting in a banded stretch position, the two minutes probably isn't going to do you a ton of good. Whereas if you can spend, uh, you're probably going to spend so much time to get out of the stress that puts you into that situation. 
Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, my mind kind of, you mentioned like a baseball player. Like if I had my choice, like I would love to take baseball guys in, have them go rock climb and crawl on the ground for an hour and that'd be their workout. And that right there, I feel like it's probably all the arm care that they really need. You know, I think when we think of like more traditional stuff within the baseball world, that's where some of the three by 10 Jaeger band stuff comes in. Like I'm doing my banded external rotation work. I'd maybe do a little bit of my way to ball series. And, you know, I jokingly last off season, um, towards the tail end, I started the baseball world's funny, man. Like they have, you know, there's like this driveline world, this MPA, tread athletics, all this stuff. Like they have all of their weighted balls laid out and there's like certain ones that, you aren't supposed to throw you use them for like other drills and different things like that. And like one day, dude, I'll just pick up like the four pound driveline ball. And I just like start chunking it into like our plyo wall that we have for medicine ball throws. And you'll just watch all of the pitchers around us, like in our MOV group, they'll freak out. And it's like, dude, you're not supposed to throw that ball. And it's like, when you ask them why, like they really don't have like a good answer for it. It's just, they know that they're, you, you know, you don't throw that one. You, you can throw the rest of them, but you can't throw that one. And I'm like, dude, if if my goal is to throw a ball as hard as I can, and I know that that's not the only goal of a pitcher, but, you know, it's a big deal when it comes to that world. Everybody wants to increase velo. Like, why are we putting this self-limiting cap on, like, what we can and can't do? If I raise my ceiling to be able to throw that ball safely, like, again, and I've said this a lot, like, your body can really do whatever you want it to do if you progress it in a sensible manner over time. Like that's like a one liner that I like to just like throw out there because like I, I solely believe in that. Like if, if I can't throw this four pound ball, like who's to say that I can go throw a five ounce rock, you know, a hundred pitches in a game and do what I need to do there and be all right, you know? And so I think with kind of not to get too far off on a rabbit hole with what you were kind of saying with some of the climbing stuff, some of the crawl stuff, like, that's a thing that I've kind of come around to lately is like being able in a closed chain manner, like load my hands, my wrist, my shoulders, my elbows. Um, you know, I have to create stability through, you know, the contralateral sides of my body as one hand leaves the ground and I work to one of another. I think it might've been on your podcast with uh, Ben Baggett, I believe, you know, he talked about with crawling patterns, almost having that like sexy tiger walk mm -hmm. and you're kind of like watching shoulder blades move. Like that's some of that spinal engine stuff that you kind of start to see that like, dude, it's very global. It, it covers and checks a ton of boxes. And even with, you know, we were doing a lot of dead hangs and stuff um, for about a year leading up to when I kind of started to come across your content and your page. And then dude, you took some of that stuff to the next level with, you know, just taking one arm off the bar, being able to move around on it, like the stability that I have to create on some of those transitions throughout my shoulder, all while getting like this huge distraction piece, like all of that stuff is amazing. And I think if you progress it sensibly, like you're going to cause, you're going to cause some long-term adaptation. That's really strong that I don't think, you know, something like a Jaeger band or whatever rotator cuff exercise you want to insert here can create at some point. At some point, you're just limited by the stimulus that cause. I can keep progressing volume forever, but I'm trying to get ready. I'm trying to get somebody prepared to throw a five ounce rock as hard as they can repeatedly. 
Yeah. And, and like personal example there, um, uh, from football, I had a, um, a, some sort of nerve damage in my elbow or a shoulder, maybe it was higher up in the shoulder, but to where I couldn't feel my fingers at some point, like, uh, and all, like I was given a lot of the Kelly Stratus stuff. I was given a lot of the banded, um, bandage shoulder stuff, but, uh, I was told just not the, not the bench press, um, which is probably helpful in that time. But it's like, the only thing was like, stretch the shoulder, um, don't bench press, uh, and you'll be set. Um, and like these hands that I couldn't feel, and I started, I couldn't do a pull up at the time. I mean, like, I was 250 pounds in football, could barely do a pull up, you know. Um, and I started adding in a lot of this climb stuff, and like all of that disappeared, you know, like it all disappeared. Like, my, my elbow and shoulder have never felt better, and like ever. Like, it, it's so crazy the, the the stimulus you're able to get in there, and just how many things you're able to fix. Um, and you talk about Ben Baguette, and um, the pitching doc was another guy that we really talked about a lot of the how, like. The, the sensitivity one the like the drills that we do like it just doesn't make any sense and like you talked about with the balls that they talk about throwing it's like yeah we're not supposed to throw this one but um you can go throw a football you know <laughs> it's like like what are we talking about like like these these things just don't add up but it's it's funny that you see you see it like firsthand with those pitchers it's like they're so indoctrinated that they don't even know why it's just like holy shit you're not supposed to do that like that 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 that's super funny because they, like they they have no like they have no, it's not like it's another trainer saying it to you to where like they have, um, like if they let you throw that ball, they let athletes see you throw that ball, then they lose their clients because like, that's what their program says, or that's what the tread line says or tread athletics says, you know, like, so it's like personal. It's like just another athlete that's just been indoctrinated into the system where they have no, no horse in the race. There's like, Holy shit, you're not supposed to do that. You're going to blow your elbow. It's like, why? Like, like, again, why is that going to happen? You throw the ball a hundred miles an hour with your like cannon for an arm. Like, how is that not more dangerous than what we're doing here? You know? Yeah, you're exactly right. And I took it upon myself over the course of the next week or so to in front of them every day, just kind of mess around. I chunk it into the wall. Um, me and another, uh, trainer up there, very similar to mine to me, you know, we're kind of going back and forth with all of them. It was like a week long debate that we had about whether or not you could throw this thing. Um, me and him would go outside and literally just started chunking it for distance coming back in. It's like, Hey, elbow's fine. Um, and dude, like, I mean, I've had, I played baseball, you know, my whole life all through high school. And so like, I've had enough exposure to it. And then kind of at some point, um, when you had, uh, I believe it's movement through medicine on your podcast. He doesn't even have his name on his Instagram. I don't think, uh, the pitching doc, some of those other guys. And like, you kind of got started to get down some of those rabbit holes too, some of this baseball world has been inspiring. Like I just start to see this like endless progression of where we can take things and keep driving this new stimulus. Um, and so when I started seeing a lot of what you guys were doing, it, I took it upon myself to, you know, like my mechanics are like halfway there, but I'm also three times the athlete that I think I probably was whenever I was last playing baseball. Like, if my kind of base and GPP is wide enough, like how much specific training will it need to throw a ball like 90 miles an hour? And so flirted around with it a little bit. I've been able to hit above 90 off a of crow hop. I've gotten like up to 88 trying to chunk one off a mount. And so the progress continues to see where we'll take things. Um, but dude, it's just been cool to realize like if you, you talk about like upgrading the organism, if I can upgrade the organism and level up enough, like, I couldn't dunk a basketball in high school. I never even tried throughout college when I was playing football because I was too scared to hurt myself for something important, which was stupid. But like I've gotten on the other side of stuff and I train pretty general to be able to do a lot of stuff and I can lift a heavy weight. I can run faster than I really ever did when I tried to run fast. I can chunk a baseball pretty fast for the average person. 
Like I can go pick up these random one-off things because I've been able to just continually find a way to just, just keep leveling up that organism. And I'm trying to take, you know, some of that, like, I'm, I'm kind of like the, the test rat on myself for some of these ideas. And then once I feel good enough about some of this, we can start to kind of bring it and marry it over to what I feel comfortable with doing with some of our athletes. Um, and that's just been a really fun process to be totally honest with you. And, and tying this back into the, the brain piece too, because this is something that's really important. Like you talked about getting out of the mindset of like, you can't, you know, like getting out of the mindset of, I can't throw 90 without these mechanics. Like it is so massive. Like as an athlete, like you talk, getting out of the mindset of, I can't dunk because I'm going to hurt myself for sport. Like, like now you and I think about that, like what, like what in the world? But I was so stuck in that too. It's like, I want to do anything during like, during these certain times of year or ever outside of football or ever outside of track, because like I would get hurt or do is like, I was taking so much away from my athletic development because I was in this like fear-based fragile-based mindset of like, I'm you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. You're incapable. You need to do this. And like, then you just start to create a fragile, you like, you do get hurt. Cause you start to create, like you just speak into existence, this fragile organism, whereas getting out of that, that, the mindset piece, it's huge. Like that, that's the biggest thing I can do for an athlete it has nothing to do physically. It's getting out of that, mindset of i can't do something or i'm not able to do something or i can't do it at this time it's like no man like you are capable of doing this like your organism is capable of doing it and getting them addicted to that feeling so next time they can get addicted to the feeling of i can do this what else can i do you know and like I, it sounds like when you're talking about like i can sprint faster i can dunk a ball uh, can i throw a ball 90 you know like once you get addicted to that mindset like how capable the human body is it, it's unbelievable and you start to implement that into your sport and and man you start to see some sweet things happen on the field with your athletes yeah man i've never related to something more like i know 1000 percent that i hindered my athletic process and my time playing sports based off of the mindset that you know you just put out and i think we can both relate to you know, through our athletic career, we dove really hard into the training world. And we knew if we probably weren't ever playing a sport, like this is what we would be doing. But I think with where the training world was at some of those times that we were playing, that mindset was there. Like you couldn't be stupid. You couldn't get hurt. You couldn't do risky things in the weight room. Um, you know, and so I think with some of that, like I put a cap on what, you know, I thought I could do. And I think, you know, certain athletes we come across probably still have that cap. And, you know, I think it's our job to be able to kind of open up that big picture to them and see, like, again, if you sensibly progress things over time, there's not anything your body can't do. We are this amazing, adaptable organism. And so we just have to keep pushing the envelope on some of these things and keep finding ways to progress, progress, progress. And again, we don't have to be stupid. It's got to be sensible. But that's kind of where with myself, like, the only thing I'm risking is not being able to play flag football on Tuesday night and not being able to play my Sunday adult league basketball game. And so with myself, like, yeah, I'm going to be a little dumb. And so I'm not making all my athletes do everything that maybe I do, but I'm going to go through the process of figuring some stuff out so that I can level up, you know, what I'm doing physically, but also what I know as a trainer, a strength coach, whatever label you want to put on me and bring back the best results of some of my athletes. Yeah, that's freaking awesome. I want to tie this back a little bit into, I wrote this question down that I want to talk about. We started talking about a little bit of upper body work and a little bit of the hangs and climbs. Uh, I know you work with a lot of overhead athletes, a lot of traditionally like rotational athletes. I know APEC is known for that. What does your upper body training look like? Because I know this is a big question. You One, you don't see it a ton in in uh, the sports performance world. Nobody really posts about it, but I know it's a big question of like, 
it, it seems easier to implement like a three-way lunge into a program and working some of these aspects into a program than some of the upper body stuff. And that's why I think a lot of the climbing stuff I post hits big for a, um, a lot of coaches because it's the first time they've seen it. But how are you implementing some of this upper body work to where we're still able to get some of these output aspects in while also working in this triplanar way um, and uh, some of the climb aspects that you're implementing, maybe some of the hangs. Are we traditionally barbell bench pressing with our athletes? Like, what does that kind of look like with your athletes? Does it, that probably depends on per athlete too, but maybe some of these um, untraditional upper body methods that you're using to work this triplanar method. Yeah. So all the traditional means are still going to be there. I still want to be able to build our athletes again, force producing capability. Their neural drive has to be high. I want to be able to raise that ceiling. So when they go to their sport, they can execute things at least to a certain level and degree. But like with that comes preparing the structure and tissue very globally. And so that's where you're going to see us, you know, start to sneak in some of the things like the hangs, um, like early on in off season, it's going to be a strict dead hang. Just get up there, hold on, hang out. Um, you know, with some of the stuff that you've been able to put out, I've been able to sneak in to get on the insider stuff, pick up on what you put out. And I found, you know, an infinite way of starting to progress some of those things just by simple hand adjustments, um, being able to mix in push patterns with crawling. So being able to, you know, we have, we're blessed with our facility. We have a you know, plenty of open track room that's right there across from our weight room. I can take athletes from doing some more traditional movements and have them walk right over to the track and do a crawling pattern and mix pushups within all of that. And that's getting again, that very triplanar aspect to the upper body. Like me being able to do a lateral bear crawl is this frontal plane action. And kind of like what we talked about earlier with even any linear action, I'm always going to be having this triplanar movement that's involved. Um, and even like some of the hand adjustment stuff on a pull-up bar, if I can take myself from hanging on a bar and be able to readjust my grip and rotate all the way around and face the other way, I've literally just stressed all of that tissue through that entire shoulder girdle and this transverse movement. Um, and then within that model that we usually work within of speed, power, and strength in that power area, um, it's maybe not so much just this big force producing capability that we're after, but we're still stressing tissue through the upper body with all the throws, the swings that we do um, overhead slamming. Um, we're able to get pretty 3d with everything that we do in that area and move really, really fast and stress the upper half. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's exactly how kind of our approach is too. I was wondering if anything, anything switched up there or if I, cause I love the, the, a lot of the, the hang aspects and you just talked about some of the, switching the grip or just it, it doesn't have to be super complex it doesn't have to look super complex but like once you start to implement it and just feel it it's like holy crap like my, my hand and wrist like that work in so many different aspects it's not just like straight lats anymore you know like i'm working the hands and wrist and different aspects of the upper body and the spine is twisting and lower bodies rotating with it as you're rotating your body around the bar like there's there's so many cool aspects to to that that uh is a lot of times traditionally untrained and like you said though like even just adding in a dead hang for many athletes is, is a game changer. Like there's so many athletes that can't hang from a bar for 30 seconds when they come in. Like, so even just starting there, it, it's, it's massive for, for a lot of these athletes. Like they can't climb for 30 seconds. They can't crawl for 30 seconds. Like for, for the, the, uh, the coaches that are listening, maybe for the first time on the podcast or just are like, okay, like I'm not going to go fully into this rabble, like start to implement those things like 30 seconds at a time. Watch how many athletes can't do that. And then build that up and just see how far you can take that. And then from there, that's where you really start to notice the difference and 
probably start to implement a little bit more of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, and I think something that maybe I kind of skipped over that would be a little bit more direct to answer to your question. You know, we talked about that, that, th- that lunge matrix, you know, I can manipulate that in eight different vectors if we kind of utilize it in the grid that we will, but even something like a push-up, dude, just a manipulation of hand position. So I could take a normal push-up where both my hands are even, and then I can also take my right hand in front, my left hand in front. Now I'm manipulating things in the sagittal plane. I'm stressing different lines of tissue. It actually becomes a little bit more of this unilateral focus. I can also manipulate my hands by taking them wide and then taking my thumbs and bringing them all the way together. So now I'm stressing things through that frontal plane and then I can rotate. So everybody thinks this is all weird and bad and nobody can do this, but like I could turn my fingertips together and then turn them away from one another. And again, I'm putting my body in some weird positions, stressing my ability to create stability and produce some force in these weird in ranges and That is literally what we do in sport all the time. Like you can kind of take some of this FRC movement that happened over the course of the last like five or so years. Like they get in weird positions, they hang out there, they build up isometric contractions, they build up their ability to be stable and produce force in these in range positions. And if I can build up my capacity to handle force in some of those weird positions, then I'm going to be able to mitigate probably my risk of injury there yeah that that's pretty freaking sweet I, I wrote down a bunch of that i'm gonna try probably when we post this podcast i'm gonna try a bunch of these uh different variations to add them in at the video for some of this uh for the podcast content but that, that that's pretty dope i'm thinking implements a lot of that with the dips too is a different hand positions with dips or even dumbbell bench um and then the iso end range that's a lot of it because you see a lot of especially um we have some baseball athletes or softball athletes that'll especially like mid season. If, if, if their program's pretty traditional, talk about how we'll have to work on some of the wrist things or elbow things, but you're holding an ISO and some of these different wrist positions. I think that could be pretty wicked. Uh, and the other thing that do you guys implement any mace usage at all or club usage at all? That's something that we just started using. Um, I, that's more personal question. How have you implemented any of that, any success there, anything that you're working on there with that? Yeah. And so it's kind of dependent on who wants to tailor to it a little bit. I personally love it. I think the Vipers actually end up getting a little bit more usage for a lot of the same stuff that you would use like a club or mace with. What's the Viper? So people that don't know the Vipers, it's the big like rubber tube looking thing that has like two handles on it. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a big, yeah, big cylinder. It's got handles on it. And it's basically made to do a ton of like that triplanar 3D rotational pattern type movement. Um, so what we'll do with, you know, all three of those implements is basically take some just standard movements and patterns, and it'll actually allow the upper body to kind of add some rotation and challenge some of these different vectors within whatever movement that I might have. So for example, if I'm doing just a traditional lunge pattern, let's say I'm just lunging forward and back. Okay. I'm stressing everything mostly in the sagittal plane. And I'm returning back to my center. But if I put a mace that's offset on weight, or I took something like that Viper, and as I lunged forward and back, I actually was bending the Viper back and forth. Now I'm trying to fight all of this vector of force that's happening in this side to side frontal plane while I'm moving forward and back. So I'm challenging my adductors. I'm challenging my glutes. I'm stressing this tissue to be stable all while I'm moving forward and back. If I'm a running back running down the field, I'm moving forward. I'm moving in the sagittal plane, but maybe I just got hit from the side of my shoulder. I have to now create stability in this frontal plane to resist going somewhere and keep trekking forward. And I can do the same thing while rotating 
and moving forward and back. And some of these different implements kind of allow us to create some of that variability within more traditional type movements. So that's, yeah, that's typically, cool. that's typically how we'll use some of that stuff. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. I saw the video of you doing, you were doing um some, I was at skips with it, the rotational skips or yeah. bounds with it. Yeah. That the, the, the was, was pretty dope. I, I liked it a lot. Okay. So last question before we get to the rapid fire rounds, this has been pretty dope so far. Uh, what has been the biggest eye opener in the past year for you training wise? Is there anything where you're like, okay, like this is something that like, and it doesn't have to be past year. Maybe it's past week, past month. Like what was something recently that you're, maybe you're not totally set on yet, but you're like, okay, this has promise, or at least I'm diving into this. And maybe it's something that you're experimenting with yourself that uh, hasn't made the uh, the grand appearance yet with your athletes. But it's like, okay, th there's something, at least something here that I like a lot. Yeah. Um, and not to kind of reiterate anything that we've completely squashed already, but I think the two biggest things is the brain's role on everything. And, you know, I don't know what the right dosage is on creating this just like super you know, tapping into that eight brain chaotic environment where people are just like gun ho, like let's send it on everything. Um, like, I don't know how much of that is good and how much of that is bad yet. And that's something that I'm still trying to find out, but I know it's super important. Um, and then the other thing is, man, just being like the different type of loading of the upper body, like what we've talked about, it was a really big eye opener for me to see what some of these people were doing in the baseball world. And, you know, knowing, Davis and Wolf's law and knowing that like mechano transduction, I'm going to adapt to different types of loading and trying to figure out how to progress that over time. Like I think a lot of it can start with these closed chain actions of crawling. I'm going to build up kind of the bone mineral density of these upper body structures that don't really get a lot of exposure to that. Like we do walking on our feet all day. Um, and then, you know, treating the upper body kind of like how we do the lower body. If I'm sensible about my, my progression, like we do plyos all the time. We try to build this elastic ankle structure, all the tendons and ligaments of our lower half. We want to be extremely elastic and bouncy and be able to handle a lot of this force capacity. And it's like, what's going to happen if I do some of that same type of loading with my upper body. And that's when some of these like rapid eccentric, some of these collision based activities that I see, people doing with our upper body. That's kind of the stuff that opened up my mind to like, again, I'm going to say for a third time, like I can progress anything in a sensible manner over time and I can be whatever my body can kind of adapt to. Um, and so, man, overall, it's like the brain and that has been just a huge eye opener for me. And it's led me down a bunch of different rabbit holes that I'm still exploring and I don't have all the answers on yet. Um, but it's been an awesome pursuit. Yeah, the man, the the upper body plows, the thing that you ended with that that's something that we probably didn't dive into a ton. But you, know, you talk about we prepare the feet and ankle and lower body with that, and we never do it with the upper body, and then we like send our athletes out there to like, and I, that's where I think grappling is a big piece of it too. But so many things, it's like we'll send an offense lineman out there without ever having done any of that, like not working any of it. All they've done is bench press, and then we're like, we wonder why we have shoulders, wrists, hands, fingers, you know, like all of that stuff that's popping up. It's like, of course, like you didn't prepare that body for what's about to do. So implementing and that was a big eye opener because like. It, my just traditional background there was none of it there was some med ball throws which is still important but it's really not hitting that aspect of what you want to do so I, I that's really cool that you mentioned that piece for sure man like you you said it well like i mean an offensive lineman's going to go out there and just take on this collision of this 300 pound guy that runs a four or five across from him and like dude i haven't done any type of close chain loading of like you know his upper body you know, so being able to do some, again, like that rapid eccentric work, some of like the rebound pull-up type actions, some of like depth drops into push-up positions, like 
you know, what kind of shoulder girdle can I build up over time? Like, I feel like I can build this pretty freaky elastic, you know, shoulder girdle that can probably take on the demands of throwing a hundred mile an hour fastball probably can take on the demands of absorbing that 300 pound guy across from me. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. This is lived up to the hype. This lived up to what I was looking forward to. Now let's get to the rapid fire rounds. Last three questions of the podcast. Um, first one, favorite books that you have, and these can be training books. These can be non-training books. You can go both categories, however you want, but what are some of the favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? Yeah. I mean, I think the time that I read a lot of these books, um, did a lot for me in my life. And I think kind of opened up my mind to, I think at the time that you and I were coming up, it was kind of the crevice of like, you, we were just starting to see that people could like make a living out of this. Like I was a very average student in high school. Um, I was probably pretty ADD sport was like really the only thing that I truly cared about. And then training kind of came on um, later on in my life. But at that time there, we didn't just see a bunch of people getting rich off of telling people how to like lift weights. And so when I was a freshman in college, that was kind of the first time um, due to some training people. I don't know if you know, Corey Gregory is, we had a podcast called like business of biceps. And like when I was 15 years old, you know, Corey G was like one of those bodybuilding type scenes. Cause that's where everybody starts out that I first came across. And man, he would do like this whole thing that he called like lunge and learn. And so he basically audio book or podcast. And that was the first time I'd ever heard about, you know, what a podcast was. I didn't even know you could listen to books. Um, and he would talk a lot about like rich dad, poor dad, and basically creating like a career where you can tell people how to lift weights and you can make money really however you want to, if you kind of go build that and reading rich dad, poor dad kind of opened up my eyes to like, I can kind of create whatever career I want to. And I didn't have to be a good student to be somebody that was smart. Um, and as I kind of got through my freshman year of college, I started to build some habits that one made me like a really good student throughout college, but two, I kind of just like saw myself transform into like what was considered the smart guy for the first time ever in my life. Um, and then I think with that kind of cascade led me to like think and grow rich. I think that title is a little bit, um, misleading on that book, but that book in particular kind of opened my mind to just the power of my thoughts, man. Like I can manifest anything I truly want in this life. I think there's a quote in that book where it's like, you, you reap a thought, you sow an action, you reap an action, you sow a habit, you start reaping your habits and now you're going to sow your destiny. And so I think I started to take control of what my thinking was and kind of decided what exactly it is I want to do in this life and made sure that my thoughts aligned with some of that, which led my actions to align with that. And I think I'm getting to a point now where I'm starting to see the reality of like what my dream is kind of start to play out. Um, obviously there's a long way to go on certain things, but I feel like I'm taking the right steps in the right direction. And a lot of that's due to some of those books I read early on. Um, and then probably one of my favorite books of all time, this was actually the only, the first book I ever read twice. Um, it's the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, the author of that book, Stephen Covey, like after I read it the first time I was like, dude, I'd have done anything just to like sit down have lunch and meet this guy. Um, when I got done with that book, I just felt like I was better in every aspect of my life, better in relationships, um, better in my relationships with my family, significant others, how I went about my business with training and sports and my job. Um, that's a really, really good book. As far as training stuff goes, um, I think Speed Strength is a great book. It's a good eye opener out there. Um, I love, I think it's Game Changer, Fergus Conley and Cameron Joss. Um, but those are probably like a top five right there. We got oh. three, three non-training and two that are solid training ones. 
Yeah, yeah, those those are pretty dope. Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. I had the same exact response to the first time I read it. And obviously, like a lot of books is just when you read them and where you read them. But that that's that that one seems pretty timeless if you just follow yeah. those principles, which I, I was a big fan of. Uh, you kind of answered this question at the start of the podcast. First, first guest to answer rapid fire, like first question he asked. He, yeah, answered the last question, the first question. Um, but who's a guest that you think we should have on this podcast? Oh, man. Uh, Kai Heck has been a credible mentor of mine. So early on when I was walking into those APEC doors for the first time, when I could first start driving, um, I kind of walked in and looked at that round at that building and it felt like everything that I ever wanted to do, whatever my dream was, I didn't really have it all like mapped out yet, but it was like somebody took out of my brain, you know, what I wanted to do and it was already doing it with APEC. And Ty, I think kind of saw my interest in training and kind of took me under his wing a little bit. And it's been an incredible mentor for me. Um, and he's just been a brain of a guy that I've been able to kind of go to. He's been in my position that I'm in right now. And he's just one of those forever learners. You know, he's quiet, he's methodical. He thinks a little bit before he speaks. He's very wise with his words. And now he's gone down this whole journey of going back to school. Um, he'll be a licensed therapist here pretty soon. And he's been a long time performance coach at an extremely high level, um, high level programmer. So anytime anybody could get a chance to sit down and ask him questions, you know, there's a lot to be taken away from that guy. Yeah, that, that's pretty awesome. You, as soon as you talked about him the first time, I was like, okay, got to have this guy yeah. on the podcast. That, that's pretty good. All right. Last question of the podcast. This one's a little bit deeper. Um, when all this training stuff is over, all the APEC stuff is over, all the stuff that we're talking about today is over. What do you kind of want your legacy to be? Yeah, man. Um, I think that, you know, training has been this incredible vessel for me to relate and get exposure to other individuals and touch, you know, other people's lives. And so I think at the end of the day, like I'm always going to be thankful for the vessel that that's been. Um, I don't think that my legacy needs to be like, this guy was the greatest trader ever. He helped me improve my 40 yard dash. Like I want to continue to use this so that when people think back to me long-term that I was able to one, just be an absolute servant to them. Um, be able to care about their well-being in every facet of their life, not just athletic performance. Um, and I'm very thankful that training has been the vessel to be able to do that and touch the people that I'm able to touch. Um, and yeah, man, like if people think back on me, I hope, I hope that it's in that light. Boom. Well, coach, thanks for being on the podcast. This is awesome. Yeah, man. I appreciate being here. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.